Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 25 of Mike Check on Sports. I'm Steve Napolitani. The world of sports is starting to take some shape. The NBA agreed on a plan for 22 teams in Orlando. The NHL starts phase two on June 8th. And one I am extremely excited for, the PGA Tour returns this week with the Charles Schwab Challenge in Fort Worth, Texas. My next guest is the voice of the Edmonton Oilers. He has called over 900 minor league hockey games. He happens to be my third Ithaca College alumni on the pod, and he is a man after my own heart with a soft spot for ice cream. It's play-by-play man Jack Michaels. Jack, how are you? I'm good, and now I'm curious. I, I know you. I know you would have had Ed Cohen. Would Brendan Burke be the other? No, Kevin Connors from ESPN. Oh, there you go. Well, Kevin and I went to school together, so that makes me feel less old. Kevin, there you go. Kevin was a year behind me at Ithaca. Uh, obviously much better looking, but you've, you've got another guy in the area. If you can, uh, if you can stand having the voice of the Islanders on, uh, you can go ahead and get another Ithaca guy, Brendan Burke. Oh, boy. Him, him, and, him and Ed are the young pups. <laughs> so since the NHL took the pause on March 12th, how, how have you been spending your time? Basically trying to keep my teenagers from driving my wife and I crazy we got a 15 year old and a 13 year old in the house the girl had her soccer season pushed back the boys baseball season uh was canceled but luckily the golf course is open the same day so i get him out to the course about six days a week get him out of my hair and thus far we're all still living so in all seriousness it's you know one of those things and steve i'm sure you're the same way you know, whatever the new normal that we're going to be looking at, I hope it gets here as soon as possible. But, mm-hmm. you know, especially living in your area, you know, it's a real thing. And, and uh, you know, I hope I hope we get through this uh, with, with the damage mitigated from this point forward. Exactly. Now, you grew up in Meadville, Pennsylvania, kind of an equal distance from Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Was Go sport- ahead and say it. Middle of nowhere. That's no, fair. No, no. Okay. <laughs> Not going to say middle of nowhere. It's, you're only. Allegheny, Allegheny College uh, <laughs> is a small liberal arts school that some people from the Northeast might vaguely recognize. Yeah. But uh, yeah, outside of that, it's pretty, pretty off the beaten path. And you're right. Because it's equidistant, I made a fatal choice as a young kid, Steve, and that's uh, in the NFL department. Oh. Instead of going with my home state, I made the ill-fated decision to get swayed by one great year <laughs> from Brian Seip, probably the worst, most valuable player in the history of the National Football League. And that happened to be in a year where my skull first hardened and I became a cardiac kid for life. So wow. 40 years of misery have followed Meanwhile, the Steelers have added to their record number of Super Bowl victories. Oh, and was hockey a big part of your life growing up or no? Not really. I mean, you know, when Mario came, that is honestly, I mean, even to this day, I have trouble naming you a penguin, you know, from pre-84. I was nine, I think, when Mario came to the Penguins. And really, I mean, you know, he... He completely turned the city uh, and got them into hockey. And it was right as, if you'll recall, the early 90s, 
where the last few years of Chuck Knoll, things weren't going well. Mm -hmm. And the Penguins slid in there ahead of the Pirates, even though the Pirates had some great teams in the early 90s. And that's what that's what pit, put Pittsburgh hockey on the map. And, and then when Lemieux, from an ownership perspective, you know, saved the Penguins a second time. Uh, what, you know, this is before Crosby, and they were really having problems. And uh, Lemieux stepped in, absorbed quite a bit of mm-hmm. debt. And now you can make an argument in a certainly non-hockey city before 1984, Mayor Lemieux, and not Mike Tomlin, not Bill Cower, not Franco Harris. Mario Lemieux might be the most beloved Pittsburgher to this day in the Steel City. He has truly saved that franchise. Twice. Twice, right. As a player and then as an owner, and, you know, obviously Crosby did the rest. And then was broadcasting always the plan for you? Is that what you kind of loved to get into when you were a kid? Well, I mean, look, Steve, we all had – delusions of grandeur when we were about 13 and 14 <laughs> well you know what's funny two years later we all realized you know what professional athletic athletics is not in my future <laughs> and so yeah i you know i couldn't get on the air in high school i remember making a phone call and you know it was kind of only college interns who were allowed on the stations near my town so i went to ithaca I got a sports cast at six in the morning on a Saturday hmm. on the main station there, uh, five days into my college career. I think classes started on a Tuesday and I was on the air. I think it was, it might've been Sunday morning, whatever it was, it was not an ideal time, hmm. but I got on the air and, uh, the one thing about Ithaca is I'm sure you've talked with, with Ed and, and, and your fellow Ithacans, Kevin Connors, among them uh but you know they they get you on the air right away there's no waiting around for two years like at syracuse mm-hmm. or one of those schools and so i got a lot of experience covering a wide variety of sports field hockey lacrosse soccer baseball basketball even club hockey you name it and i was out there doing it even if i wasn't that familiar with the sport hmm. and that really kind of gave me a significant leap forward on some other guys. Is that the reason for Ithaca? For that ability to kind of hop on the air sooner it than was. later? It was. It came down, for me, it came down to Ithaca and Syracuse. And hmm. I had a better time at my, you know, back then, I, I don't know whether they still do them, you know, the initiation weekends or whatever the heck they call them, discovery days or whatever. <laughs> and I had a better time at Ithaca than I did Syracuse. Hmm. And, again, the appeal of, getting on the air right away, especially for someone who didn't have a chance to do it in high school other than doing, you know, the morning announcements and stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, was was something that really appealed to me. And I, I did have a good friend in high school who had gone to Ithaca. It seemed about the perfect distance from my hometown, about four and a half hours. So, you know, far enough where if I needed an emergency reinforcement, I had it, but definitely – also far enough where, you know, I didn't have to worry about my parents dropping by. So, <laughs> so you know, it was, it, it was a great experience. I've got a bunch of college friends, not necessarily from the broadcasting school, mm-hmm. but that live in your area to this day. Were there any sports broadcasters you kind of looked up to or were influences for you? Well, for 
me, you know, Mike Lang, who still does mm-hmm. Penguins play-by-play on a part-time basis, was always the guy. He was a legend in Western PA, still is. Uh, I was always captivated by the fact that, particularly hockey, with how fast it was, uh, he could rattle off 10, 12 minutes of play-by-play in complete sentences, you know, without one stumble. I, I thought he was amazing. Hmm. And, you know, he had a flair. I I wasn't as into the nicknames as everyone is, you know, like uh, beat him like a rented mule and all that stuff. <laughs> I didn't much, you know, I didn't really care about that. Right. I didn't have one feeling. That's where he got his fame. But for me, it was just he could do play-by-play like nobody's business. And the other one, Steve, to be honest with you, is a horse racing guy by the name of Dave Johnson, Mm. who when I was a kid did all the triple crown races. And for me, I think hockey is one of those sports, because of the pace, similar to horse racing, I try to... I try to eat it, treat every game like a race. Uh, you know, build to a crescendo, and hopefully there's a hell of a finish. Hmm. I mean, obviously, the standard about hockey is it's a 3-2 league. Well, if that's true, you get a lot of close games. Right. And in the NHL, there's more close games than any other sport just by the lack of scoring, right? right. You know, even a, even a lopsided game can be 2 nothing or 2-1, you know, very late. So... Because you have a, you know, a decent chance of getting a close game, you, you want to build to that exciting finish, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that liking that horse racing guy has actually mm-hmm. helped me out as a professional. Well, he had the signature call, and down the stretch they come. There you go. That's right. There you go. And every once in a while, I'll steal that to keep his voice alive because I I feel like a lot of people, unlike you, Steve, who obviously. Uh, you know, you obviously have a, a great knowledge of these kind of things. He's kind of been forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I thought Dave Johnson was fantastic. And then after graduation, where, where did you go from there? Rea- reality check. Right. Reality for so many of us, right? right. I, uh, you know, especially at that time, you know, the mid, mid to late 90s, you were thinking, I'm going to explode out of Ithaca and, you know, join a fellow Ithaca alum like Carl Ravitch on ESPN. Or, you know, I had these, again, went right back to when I was 13 or 14, these delusions of grandeur. Well, what happened is I ended up crawling back to my hometown. And I was one of those guys that, you know, hey, you ain't going to see me after high school graduation. I'm going to be gone mm-hmm. and nothing will be left but a vapor trail. I was totally that guy. Talked a big game. Well, fast forward to my graduation year. I crawled back to my hometown radio station and took a gig that paid me $4 and 25 cents an hour wow. and uh, 50 bucks for doing play-by-play of small college basketball and football and high school hockey. And the the one thing about the hockey schedule is it was because it wasn't the radio station didn't have anything really set up other than you know they had some sponsors but they didn't have a fixed schedule. Mm-hmm. Obviously college football and basketball, they had a set schedule. 
So what I did was I expanded that hockey schedule, not because I wanted more reps, but because I needed that 50 bucks. Hmm. So I took a high school schedule. I used to do, you know, 10 or 11 games. And for a couple of years, I, you know, I stretched it to 16 or 17 the one year. And I think by my third year, we were doing close to 30. Wow. And all the playoffs. And believe it or not, it was the high school hockey that triggered a situation where in 1999, I was doing a Western Pennsylvania State Final. Eastern PA Final obviously was played in Philly. The Western Pennsylvania Final was played at the Igloo, hmm. the, the precursor to the current Penguins building. And the way they did it was the high school game started at 2, and then the Penguins played at 7. And once you know it, this game goes double OT. So 4.35 o'clock, Mike Lang and at that time Matt McConnell, hmm. who's now the voice of the Arizona Coyotes, he's bounced around the league a number of places. But at that time he was the radio voice of the Penguins, and Mike Lang was doing the TV play-by-play with Stagg. And they were just waiting for me to set up. So the game finishes, and Matt McConnell came up to me and said, hey, you know, basically, who the hell are you? <laughs> and, I, you know, I introduced myself, and obviously I was kind of a little bit in awe, 24 years old, an NHL guy coming up to me. And he said, uh, you know what? You know, once he heard my story, he was like, forget this basketball, football, baseball. Anyone could do those sports. You're... Your odds are incrementally stacked against you. You should be sending out hockey tapes. Hmm. So I did. And three months later, I was driving to Colorado Springs for a job in the old West Coast Hockey League, which was only in existence for eight years. The anecdote about that is the team turned out to be in existence for four years. I replaced a guy that was moved on because of visa issues. That guy is now the voice of the Winnipeg Jets, Hmm. and I'm the voice of the Edmonton Oilers. So a minor league team made two hires in four years, and both guys are current NHL announcers. Just just another arcane fact, one of many (laughs) in my lifetime. (laughs) And then, you know, with the Colorado Gold Kings, you know, you did some hockey ops there. What did you learn from that job? Well, I, I, it really kind of carried me forward into the next job, which which was I, I did a fair amount of marketing and sales in Colorado, but not in a real – not in a way that I, I realized that important. I mean, I was, I was making good money. I was contributing, uh, but I was out for it, you know, mostly from, a again, a selfish standpoint, just to boost my income and – you know, allow my wife and I to start thinking of doing things like, you know, buying a house and starting a family. Well, in 2002 and and late, like August, which is the worst time for a hockey play-by-play guy to lose his job, the team suddenly went under. Hmm. And now I've got nothing. I've got two choices. I can go to Greenville, South Carolina, or I can go – to Alaska. And this is where, Steve, you and I, growing up in the Northeast, what's the one thing, you know, you're really not that fond of? The cold. I mean, well, no, 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 no. 
what I what I would say is, like, you kind of look at the South like, eh. You know what I mean? Right, like, especially for hockey. Well, that and just, you know, slower pace. Right. I, I didn't, you know, I just was like, eh. You know, I, I kind of, even though I'm from the sticks, I kind of, I kind of thought of the deep South as the sticks, especially for hockey. Right. So, you know, which, which turned out to be erroneous. I mean, obviously they've had two NHL franchises and a number of successful teams in the minors, but this one happened to go under the very next year, the Greenville growl. Hmm. I, in the meantime, went up to Alaska and it turned out to be the best move I ever made. I basically did everything for the team, including, you know, I was the alternate governor for the team, so I was in on all the league meetings and really kind of knew the organization inside out from both a league and a team perspective. Basically, the only thing I didn't touch was merchandise. Hmm. You know, and, and being that invested in it drove me to some, you know, really good numbers in corporate sales. And, you know, I was able to buy a house and start a family and live quite comfortably. The problem with that, Steve, is you back yourself into a corner financially. Right. Where going to the American League makes no sense because you're looking at anywhere between a fifty and a seventy-five thousand dollar pay cut. And so, at you know, and as the late two thousands approached, I was in kind of an NHL or bust situation, mm-hmm. and being in Alaska. I was like, I don't know whether this is, you know, this is going to work. I'm, I, I can't be far, you know, any further off the beaten path. Well, what I didn't account for was Alaska did have its own allure and people were curious. And so when Edmonton starts the hiring process for the first time in 38 years with their original play-by-play announcer basically having volunteered when the WHA started in 1972, they were willing to take a look at everyone, mm-hmm. including an American living in Alaska. Hmm. Was there any part of you during that time in Alaska that maybe you thought, maybe I'll stick with the business end and not continue the broadcasting end, or was it was broadcasting or bust? I hadn't given up yet. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting you asked me that question. Had I gone on for another four or five years, I might have reached that point where, you know what, it's not going to happen. And to be honest with you, my approach to the Edmonton job was almost that fatalistic, it's not going to happen. I had gotten close for some NHL jobs Mm -hmm. while I was in Alaska. I had three pretty good looks, and it just didn't happen. For Edmonton, I didn't. I, didn't, I knew it was open. You know, it was a big deal when Rod Phillips, the Hall of Famer, was retiring. So everyone knew the job was open. But I really, you know, I didn't bother applying. I figured, Canadian job, no American's ever done it up there. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to bother. Well, it's funny. We were, I think I told you, we, you know, I've got some relatives on Long Island. We were heading, you know, out that way for a trip. Uh, I've, I've got an aunt who lived for years near West Hampton Beach. And, you know, I knew I was out of commission for two weeks. And for whatever reason, I was literally on my way to the airport and peeled back and decided, you know what, screw it. Let's, you know, you can't win the lottery if you don't play. Right. So 
literally on my way to the airport, peeled back. Uh, luckily, there was the post office right by the airport. I grabbed a, I grabbed a DVD of a recent, you know, ECHL. We had, we had gone to the finals that year, as it turned out, in South Carolina, of all places. <laughs> <laughs> so it shows you how much I knew about how the South viewed hockey. The Stingrays are one of the most successful minor league clubs ever. But I grabbed it. I just grabbed it, you know, straight up DVD, complete game. Didn't dress it up, uh, you know, banged out. A, I already had like kind of a, a pre-done cover letter. I made the necessary substitutions, got all the spellings right. And, you know, put in a card and in block letters printed, you know, the guy's name as, as neat as I could and dropped it. And we made our flight by about 10 minutes. Hmm. And, you know, I had just closed on a, on a house in Alaska, um, another house, because we didn't have the foresight to understand that the kids actually grow. So, <laughs> you know, our house, our house was shrinking on us. So I closed on the house June 30th. We left on the trip July the 1st to West Hampton Beach. And then I think it was July... 17th the Oilers gave me a call Hmm. and you know that led to well maybe we should do a conference call then another week or two went by well forget the conference call why don't we just fly in and then that's that's another funny story so they they call me and say let's let's fly in and you know I, I was like sure and they were like all right perfect our travel agent will call you get you all the details well the whole whole day goes by remember i'm in alaska time so you know i'm four hours behind them whole day and night goes by nothing i'm in there snuggling my three-year-old who's having trouble sleeping at six in the morning and all of a sudden my phone buzzes i leave in 90 minutes oh my god yeah and i hadn't done anything (laughs) so i had my wife pack a bag (laughs) Drove to the airport. Now, remember, here's another thing. I'm the team travel guy. So I know all the guys at the airport. So I'm literally like uh, Robert De Niro on Meet the Parents. I pull up, flip the guy my keys, and say, hey, do whatever you need to with the car. And I made the flight by 10 minutes. Went down, had a solid interview. But again, I'd been down this road before, so... You know, you always think you do well. I mean, not a ton of people come out of an interview and say, oh, I bombed. I've not got no chance. Right. We, we all think we're better than we are. And so, I, you know, I was reasonably confident, but then nothing. You know, three three weeks go by, not anything. Not a phone, not a text, wow. not an email. So now our second vacation comes up. We take two. At that time, we took two. The second one is always to Hawaii. Nice. So I did one of those emails right before we left. It was a Friday, I remember. I sent an email Friday morning. Woke up early to send the email. Hey, you know, just touching base. I'm, I'm off to a family trip with my, you know, in Hawaii. But, of course, I'll have my cell phone. Like, how obvious. Like, pathetic reach out. Please tell me my fate. You know, just embarrassing excuse to touch base nothing the whole day like not a word so the next morning you know we fly to hawaii 
and I've got a dog face on, and my wife says, hey, we're over here for 10 days. You better pick it up. Like, <laughs> I'm not sitting here with, you know, Calamity Jane for 10 days and have my vacation ruined. I said, you're right. So we get to Hawaii. We go down and get right into the Mai Tais. I'm like, you're right. Let's, let's just have fun. Forget about all this. Got my first Mai Tai in hand. We cheers. Get a call. It's Edmonton. Hmm. You want the job. Literally. Wow. I've been in Hawaii. I've been in Hawaii an hour and a half. And uh, obviously the next thing I did was buy around for everyone at the bar. And, <laughs> I mean, so it's just, and that's the story of my career. Uh, kind of like a Costanza. <laughs> when I did the opposite, I had better success. <laughs> when I tried to play it straight, I went down in flames. <laughs> And like you said, you know, you followed a, a legend there in Rod Phillips. And I saw a quote from you that I thought was so great. And it said, I'm not replacing Phillips. I'm just the second guy to call play-by-play for the Edmonton Oilers. Such an incredible perspective on how to approach it. You know? Well, I mean, you know, think of what think of what the Ranger guys are going to be looking at. Right. Whenever Kenny Albert or Sam Rosen move on. I mean, you know, Kenny's pretty close, you know. Kenny's not much older than I am, but these are two, you know, absolute legends. You know, whenever Sam Rosen decides he doesn't want to do the games anymore, it's good. number one, it's going to be a sad day. And number two, one of the all-time great announcers is, is, is moving on. Mm-hmm. That's going to be, you know, unless Kenny slides in there, that is going to be, holy cow, mm-hmm. you know, just a gaping cavern. And that's how... Rod Phillips was thought of in Edmonton. I mean, he was the only guy who'd ever done it. Right. He'd done every single game, 3,600 of them. Um, so, you know, there's no point in trying to replicate that. Uh, you, you know, first of all, you're from a different country. You know, and this is where I actually think me being so different actually helped because – just like a Sam Rosen, no one was going to be Rod Phillips. I mean, they could have brought in, you know, Chris Cuthbert or Jim Houston or any of those, mm-hmm. you know, big-time Canadian voices, and people still would have said, well, I still Rod Phillips. So it actually, I think, worked in my favor in the sense that a lot of people cut me some slack and said, well, you know, what did we expect? He wasn't going to be Rod anyway. And, you know, I think people were smart enough to see that. And sure, there was some, you know, initial rumblings or, you know, about why did it have to be, a, you know, an American or whatever. But those died off fairly quick. I think if you, as an announcer, if you do you and you come across as genuine and not trying to replicate anyone else or, or be someone you're not, like most areas in your life, announcing is is really personal. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're you, I think over time people accept you. And I know I've had some guys reach out to me, you know, random whether it be bulletin board posters or or just fans that said, you know, I thought you had no shot. I didn't like you at first, but you know what? You've kind of won me over. Hmm. And that's all you can do. I mean. When you're in play-by-play, it's a very personal feel, especially on the radio, because 
they can't see you, they can only hear you, they're totally dependent on your description of the event they'd like to be at. Mm -hmm. So you've got to do the absolute best you can. And I think for 95% of people, that's enough. Mm -hmm. If they know you're giving it your all, and they know the body of your work shows evidence that you've done the work, they appreciate the effort, especially in a town like Edmonton, which is not a transient town. The one thing, Steve, is when you're an Edmontonian, chances are you were born and raised here or close to the immediate area. It's not like a Calgary or Dallas or Vegas where no one's really from there. You know, Edmonton is by and large Edmontonians. And it's one thing I really like about the city it is a you know a hard scrabble kind of town. It's not a it's not a silver spoon type of town. So it's you know it's not. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what would be great. You know what? It's not the Ham. You know, it's not the Hamptons. It's New right. York City. Right. There's a lot of grit, and I think they appreciate the effort. And I think that's why I've had any kind of success that I've had here over the last decade. Is people recognize that? Right. They recognize the real approach and you've certainly taken the real approach and you mentioned there about the people who can't get to the game. And I saw that in an article I read too, that that's how you picture it. Like a lot of people, you know, it's, it's not an easy ticket to get. And there's a lot of people who can't get to the game. And, and it's and, an expensive ticket. Right. And you've got to bring them there. Steve, think about it. You know, you and I, uh, Rangers come to us. You want to see as a ticket package. You and I are going to have to split that. No chance we can. I mean, hey, I appreciate your work, and I'm not saying you don't live a comfortable life, but my guess is you're saying, well, let me find a few guys, and, you know, I'll split it up. I know that's my case. Right. It's an expensive ticket. So, you know, even guys that are doing really well, they're not making all 41 games. You know, those are the kind of guys, established guys that have kids and you know, they've got hockey or volleyball or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're not making all 41 games. So, you know, you go back to the Joe DiMaggio theory. you got to bring it every night because you're going to have first-time listeners in every broadcast. And you want to give them a reason to come back. And you want to give them a reason to be like, oh, I miss it Thursday night. But you know what? I'll be in the car for 30 minutes. I'll click on that dude. He's mm. not bad. Right. That's what. That's all you can ask for in my position as a play-by-play guy. You know, give them a reason to come back. And the reason they're going to come back is you're doing a good job of filling in the gaps they've missed because their schedule or their pocketbook wouldn't allow them to get there. So treat it as a serious situation, and especially in Edmonton, especially in New York. These are sports people. These are people passionate about the Oilers, passionate about the Rangers, passionate about hockey. You better bring the same level of passion to your broadcast if you're going to be accepted. Exactly. And you've seen a full transformation in Edmonton. Your first season, they they won 25 games. 2015, the team drafts Connor McDavid. And then 2016, they get a new arena and make the playoff. How, how much fun has it been to cover this team on a nightly basis? Well... You know, there's the rub, right, of going back to every night. I mean, you know, one of the things in sales, 
when I was doing sales and marketing is I tried to not make it about the win-loss record. Hmm. And I think broadcasting is the same way. You know, whether your team's won 25 games or 55 games, you got to bring the same energy. You, you can't mail in the season because you're out of the playoffs in November. Mm-hmm. And trust me, that's happened to me on more than a few occasions during my time in Edmonton. I think what you're really asking me is it must be fun to cover two of the top five players in the world yeah. and on a nightly basis. And in that respect, you're absolutely right. I mean, because, again, they're facing off against the world's greatest players. Look, we're in one of the top four leagues in professional sports in North America. This is a fantastic gig. But when you've got a Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl to look at every night, you know, you're, you're twice blessed. I mean, the plays they make, and the great thing about it, Steve, is they keep you on point. They keep you ready. You cannot have a lull because if they're over the boards, you might miss a great play in a three-second, you know, if you've got a three-second hiccup, Mm -hmm. they can make you pay for it. And then, you know, your goal call or whatever they just did is going to sound sloppy. So, you know, late in the season or, you know, at the end of a 6-1 game, there there was a game where San Jose slaughtered Edmonton last year and, McDavid, you know, batted a puck out of midair. Unbelievable hand-eye. And, you know, it made it like 6-3 with 10 seconds to go. But I was kind of proud of that call because I was on it. Hmm. And I recognized what had happened. Whereas it is quite possible if you don't have a McDavid or you don't have a dry settle, maybe you're not ready for that kind of play in a 6-2 game with 10 seconds to go. Hmm. So it's, it's fantastic. The short answer is... You've got two of the best five players in the world to look at every night. And hopefully that translates to another playoff run like Edmonton had in 2017 because the vibe here is electric. And just like it was, I was living in New York in the summer of 1994. I was an intern at HBO Sports. Hmm. And I had tickets to a number of the Stanley Cup playoff games when the Rangers made that run that year. And very similar vibe. Edmonton is just crazy when the Oilers get going in the yeah. postseason. I remember working. Now, I'll never the... forget that '94 Ranger Cup run because I guarantee you it's going to feel a lot like that if the Oilers ever go deep. Yeah, I remember being in Edmonton for the 2006 Cup final, and it was awesome. It was yeah. so much no, fun. I mean, so you've seen it firsthand. You've yeah. seen it. You've seen it even to a more dramatic extent than I did when they got to the second round in 2017. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's just a blast to be here, blast to be a part of that. And, uh, you know, at that particular point, I'm sure, Steve, you felt the same way. I mean, you might as well have been at the Garden. I right. mean, it certainly wasn't any quieter, that's for sure. No, it was pandemonium. It, it was yeah. It was awesome. And then, you know, you speak about Connor McDavid. All your, your years watching and calling hockey, where, where do you put him in terms of iconic players? Or dynamic best players. I've ever seen. Really? Best best player I've ever best player I've ever covered. I mean, for me, you know, this guy eventually is gonna be in that, you know, Michael Jordan type of class. I mean, that's where he's gonna be. Hmm. 
I, I, I lived through the Jordan years. I, I have a good time chiding my younger friends when they start, you know, rambling on about LeBron James. And I, you know, I always say, until you've lived through it, lived through both of them, you don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. Hmm. And I feel like Connor McDavid is, is just next level. And I think, you know, he's 23 years old. I mean, we've got, we've got minimum 10 years. I don't know what the Oilers are going to do in that time period, and I certainly think, you know, how McDavid's perceived mm-hmm. is going to be dictated by Edmonton's playoff results over the next decade. But I'm telling you what, if the Oilers don't make it, it won't because it won't be because of any failings on the part of Connor McDavid. He is absolutely in that category, Steve. When you start thinking about, you know, uh, just generational athletes of our time, mm-hmm. he is absolutely in that class with a Michael Jordan and a Tiger Woods. Absolutely. And have you seen him grow as a person, as taking on that role of being that leader of that organization? I have. I mean, you know, he was made captain, you know, very early. I mean, he was made captain at 19. And I do think, you know, I mean, think about the difference, you know, when you went to college and when you come out of college. That's really, you know, what he's gone through in his first 45 years of the National Hockey League. You go in as kind of an incomplete product as a person and you emerge you know, a much more confident, poised, thoughtful person than you were when you entered those years. And I, I think McDavid's starting to hit on some of that. Uh, you know, he he put out a statement, you know, regarding Black Lives Matter. He wasn't, a, you know, I'm not sure he would have done that three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an active voice in talks between the NHL and its players. He was one of the five guys that was really in on that return to play committee that, that shaped the structure that we're about to see take shape with the 2014 postseason format, even though he knew that Edmonton was one of those teams most adversely affected by it. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I don't think that's a role he would have been comfortable filling three or four years ago. So those are some of the signs that, you know, again, he's, He's a different guy. We all are, right? right. So it's just a natural maturation process. But uh, to further illustrate your point, I I only think that'll you know make him a stronger leader in the room. I can tell you this. He's always been revered in the room because, and again, I'm going to steal a little bit from the Michael Jordan documentary. Nothing Connor McDavid asks of his teammates. He's not doing already to the nth degree himself. No one works harder than that guy. I don't know whether you saw the NHL Network documentary about McDavid's rehab process from the injury he suffered last April when he crashed into the goalpost in Calgary. I did not. That's one that you and your listeners would be, if you want a glimpse into the kind of work ethic that Connor McDavid possesses, we're talking about a potential career-threatening injury at the very least, probably a year injury, and he was back on the ice for opening nights, you know, six months later. Hmm. Nothing short of remarkable. And again, testament to, you know, that that demanding work ethic 
from himself first and then his teammates that obviously we saw in the Jordan documentary. And again, it's next level. And that's why I'm ready Mm -hmm. to put him in that class, even though obviously we don't know what, what the future holds. But, you know, when I, when I think of Jordan in about, let's say 1988, that's where McDavid is right now. Hmm. He hasn't gotten the team to the highest of heights yet, but you could certainly see it coming. Hmm. And you said that next level, that battle of Alberta this year, Edmonton, Calgary, got to the next level. And did you? <laughs> and and if, if no one has heard Jack's call of the fight, which led to the goalie fight, it is a must lesson. Did you, did you channel your inner Howard Cosell for that? Well, you know what? I mean, it's funny you mention that. I am a huge Cosell guy. I'm a huge boxing guy. I grew up watching the fights with my dad on Saturday afternoons at CBS. I mean, one of my earliest memories is watching the Ray Mancini, Dooku Kim lightweight title fight. And Mancini ended up killing him in a 14th round knockout that was on CBS. I remember my mom was like, what is going on here? But any event, I've always been a huge fight fan. Now, this is a good New York tie. You'll get a kick out of this. Okay. Having said that, I was also at times a very stupid kid. Because in 1990, I elected to stay home rather than go to my dad's buddy's house and watch the Tyson-Douglas fight. Oh. Why did I stay home? To watch Kenny Skywalker win the NBA Slam Dunk Contest. <laughs> One of the dumbest decisions, along with taking Browns over Steelers, that I've ever made in my life. That is a true story. I was, when everyone else was watching Douglas Tyson, I was watching Kenny Skywalker win the Slam Dunk Contest. Oh, that is tremendous. But your call during that, that fight this year. I'm yeah, telling it you, showed, it, it showed I'm a fight fan. Yeah, it's it funny, was, Steve. I, it was I perfect. got more mileage out of that call. I've been doing Oiler games 10 years, but oh. I got more mileage out of that call than anything I've done in the previous nine and a half years. Uh, it was perfect. I even played it for my wife, and she was like, man, that is awesome. Yeah, no, it's, uh, your wife's a good sport to, <laughs> to listen to some call from 3,000 miles <laughs> away. But, yeah, no, I mean, you know, I think that uh, – you know, I, I the other thing I liked about the Jordan doc, and I'm sorry I keep going back to that. No, that's the topic, you know. But, but it is a glimpse of, you know what, there's nothing wrong with having some real rivalries in sports. Mm-hmm. And I I liked how Jordan was like, and Isaiah were like, come on with a slap at fives before games and hugging after games. That's certainly not the sports I grew up on. Right. And so... You know, if there's a little hate on in the Battle of Alberta, I think not only the Battle of Alberta, but the National Hockey League is much better for it. I mean, you know, Penguins, Flyers, Rangers, Islanders. I mean, I, you know, there's nothing wrong with hating. Right. Uh, I I think it makes I think it makes pro sports captivating. There's there's nothing wrong. It's how I became a secondary Oiler fan to begin with. I mean, when I was growing up. I watch sports for two reasons, to root for a team, but also to root against a team. (laughs) And I became an Oiler fan because as a Penguin guy, of course, I hated the Flyers and the Bruins. 
And the Oilers played those teams four times in the Stanley Cup final. So I grew to despise them. I mean, to this day, I can't stand the sight of Cam Neely. (laughs) Uh, You know, so, I mean, honestly, that's, you know, the the Battle of Alberta is one of those that I'd love to see returned in full bloom in the NHL. I think the league's a better place for it. Absolutely. And if there's any doubt that an American kid can call a Canadian team, that was it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It's, it's, you know what, it's, it's, uh, it is not the route I would have anticipated growing up in the Northeast. I'm sure you're thinking the same thing. Holy cow. You know, Colorado Springs, Alaska, Edmonton. You know, where I grew up, all those places, even Colorado, might as well have been on Neptune. I mean, I, I don't think I got west of Cleveland for right. the first 12, 13 years of my life. So I still remember the iced over images, the Northlands Coliseum, when I was talking to my parents and to let me stay up for for the second game of an ESPN Stanley Cup playoff doubleheader, mm-hmm. which was usually Edmonton Calgary. And, you know, again, thinking, where the hell is this place? I mean, like, you know, again, for a, for a kid growing up where I did, Edmonton – you know, might as well have been on Venus, but right. you know what? It's uh, it's turned out to be a great fit. And they've made a pitch to be a hub city for the NHL in Yeah, July, that'll August. be interesting. I mean, obviously the cases are extremely low here. It's one of the safest places in North America. But, you know, Steve, you and I have been around long enough. There's more to it than that. I mean, health and safety are first and foremost for sure. But I think the NBA, you know, going to Orlando on a Walt Disney World property, I mean, that's kind of a sexy return. Right. You know, I, I don't know what what the NHL is thinking right now. I know Edmonton's in the mix, but I also know the casinos have opened in Vegas. You know, Vancouver's put in a good bid. And, and to be honest with you, I, I don't think Toronto's out of the question either, even though... You know, there's been a lot of cases there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's still a, a pretty significant group of cities in the mix. It'll be interesting to see where this all lands. When you look back, do you have a favorite call or a favorite game that you've done? You know what? I I think the closest to capturing the, the two, you know, like so many things involving me, if you ask my friends and family, Silence for me is sometimes golden. And I think to what you were describing about that 2006 run, I think the closest thing we've had to that since I've been here was in game six of the second round series in 2017 against Anaheim. The Oilers had just blown a huge lead in game five. First three, nothing lead ever to disappear in the final three and a half minutes of any Stanley cup game in the history of the league. And they came up to Edmonton for game six, and they needed their crowd. Mm-hmm. And they got it. Drysaddle had a hat trick at the time, his first ever, and five points, and they won 7-1. to And, Steve, I did not mm-hmm. say a word for the last minute of that game. Mm-hmm. The crowd was so deafening, my ears within the headphones were hurting. Wow. It, the decibel level was so loud. I, I just said, one minute to go, Edmonton up 7-1. There's going to be a game seven. 
And the next thing they heard, other than just ear-splitting, you know, ovation, was the horn. I didn't say anything for the last minute of the game. You know, they were just chipping it through the neutral zone. So anything I would have said would have been completely superfluous anyways. But I think that was my favorite moment since Hmm. I've been up here. Because I, like you, I kind of was hit in the face with, holy cow, this means an awful lot to an awful lot of people in this community. And and to have the discipline on radio, because remember, it wasn't TV that you were doing it on. No, exactly. Right? I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying it was the right decision. I'm not saying I necessarily did my listeners a service. But to me, at the time, it felt right. Oh, that's great. That is great. Well, Jack, I, I appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting with me. It was a lot of fun and a lot of good stories. And you've had some journey. Yeah. Yeah, mine, is, mine has been heavy on the mileage, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, hopefully uh, you're back at it soon, and uh, hopefully Edmonton makes a nice run and uh, can take care of the Blackhawks in the first round. Steve, I certainly hope that's the case. I hope the Rangers make a run. They were actually my dark horse team at the start of the year. Hmm. I really felt like they had a lot of young talent and could make things difficult if they were able to squeak into the first round. I didn't think they'd do it from below the eight hole, obviously. But now that they're in... Things could get interesting in New York City. There's a lot of talent on that team. They're dangerous. Well, they're certainly a fun team to watch like the Oilers. So, uh, Well, it was 6-0 here. Oh, that's... And the Rangers oh. almost became the first team in the history of the National Hockey League to rally and win a game with that kind of deficit. Oh, that was so much fun. New Year's Eve. Oh. That was... That was that took us back to when we were little kids, right? right? The, old, oh. the, old, the old NHL games of 9-7 and 10-6. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that was a hell of a game. But a... in any event, Steve, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I know the folks who work with you, and they all think the world of you, so I appreciate you making time for me. Great. Thanks so much, Jack. Take care. Cheers, brother. I just love Jack's energy. And I just want to repeat, if you have not heard Jack's call from the Edmonton-Calgary game earlier this year where the goalies had a fight, it's a must-listen. It's absolutely awesome. I tweeted it out on the Mike Check on Sports account not too long ago. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mike Check on Sports. Take care. Brush your hair.